Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Benjamin Heckendorn. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 167. Benjamin Heckendorn is a console modder and famous computer engineer. He is better known as Ben Heck on the internet. Heckendorn is also an independent filmmaker, and he was the star of Element 14's The Ben Heck Show, a popular online series, until leaving the show in 2018. Ben was also known as the guest on MacFab Engineering Podcast, episodes 23, 75, and 153, and I think Ben now claims the most showings on the podcast now. Cheers. Thanks. I didn't realize being a guest of your podcast was one of my crowning achievements. It should be on your Wikipedia page. You should, like, etch it onto my tombstone when I'm dead. Like, <laughs> episodes 23, 75, and 153, and everyone be like, what the hell is the meth podcast? <laughs> it looks like in the back of a fortune cookie. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like, it, it shouldn't even have my name. It should be like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It just says, <laughs> star of meth's podcast, you know, one, two, three. <laughs> Don't you feel honored to be on on this podcast? Oh yes. Well, Parker, what, what you texted me like four hours ago and asked me if I wanted to do it, and I was like, "Sure." <laughs> what else am I gonna do except for play with my fidget spinner that you got after recording a podcast with us in Texas? That's right, at your old studio before it flooded. Yeah. This fidget spinner is from the battleship Texas, which is. A World War One dreadnought, which survived both World Wars and now is a museum. That's leaking. Yeah, it might not survive the taxpayers. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate World War. <laughs> yeah, the ultimate war. <laughs> <laughs> the la- its last battle was economic, and it lost. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we talking about this week? Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the the Pinotaur, which is the pinball platform that Ben and I have been working on. And then we'll be work uh, talking about the USB text adventure game that Steven and I talked about a couple episodes ago. It was a while ago. Yeah, we kind of alluded to doing this, and I think we're going to actually scope that project out and maybe talk up some story ideas. And then we got some video game news, which is we typically don't do on the Mac 5 Engineering Podcast, but, you know... Epic Game Store, and there's a new Star Wars game. Yay! Yay. New Star Wars game that wasn't a surprise at all because it was announced years ago. Yeah, and canceled and rebooted like how many times? Three, four times? That was a different studio. Ah, okay. Is this Lego Star Wars Infinity or something like that? I guess it, I guess we'll get to it later, right? If only, that would actually <laughs> yeah, make for a good game. Yeah. Hey, I haven't played them, but from what I've heard, the Lego Star Wars games are just pure quality. I've played them before. Yeah, they're pretty fun. All right, let's talk about the Pinotar. What's uh, what's up with that? Why is it called the Pinotar? Is that like a Minotaur? That was a that was actually a Macrofab podcast name that, or actually that ended up being a contest, didn't it? We had some people give some uh, like actually like draw up some pictures of what a Pinotar would be. Yeah, so we Ooh. we wanted to come up with a like like a name for it that was in like Greek mythology. And so Minotaur is kind of like a cool monster and Oh, Pinotaur sounds at least in my mind sounds cool. So, <laughs> and then we had, and then we had, ran a, a little contest <laughs> for some Macfab swag to like draw up logos and stuff. And so, yeah, 
turned out to be pretty yeah, fun. Yeah, I think I think uh, I can't remember who it was that won, but they they drew a picture of a minotaur where their the head was a pinball machine that had horns sticking out of it. It was actually awesome. Yeah. Well, you got to put that on the on the board then. Yeah, it's going to be the logo for the board. So, so Parker and I worked on the pin hack follow up that was going to be used at Al Scooper's Nightmare Castle, but then it was aborted. Yeah, that was an unfortunate um, series of events that happened there. <laughs> J- out of curiosity, was was the game aborted or was the board? Oh no, aborted? the the game is was made, but they switched to P Rock. Ah, basically, there's this guy named Jimmy Lipton. There, I just outed his name. Who said he was going to help us with the audio video portion, but then he didn't really come through on that promise. The embedded engineer, which was Kerry Emming, he did a really good job with the microcontroller side, but Jimmy Lipton didn't come through with what he said he'd do with the Raspberry Pi side. And then we, uh, Spooky was basically forced to switch to P Rock. And that was around the same time that I rage quit Spooky as well. Not entirely mm-hmm. related, but. Yeah. 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 So the idea behind the that, so that was Pinheck Rev eight. Yes, it was basically um, the Pinheck Rev Rev seven system. We removed the propeller and put in a Raspberry Pi three compute module, which was a, a pretty solid way of you know incrementally going updating about it. it. But yeah, we didn't have the right deep bench for the audio video portion. Yeah, like we did for the propeller because you could do the the um, assembly code, and then we had a. Uh, Roy Elfham do the audio portion of that yep. parallax yep. propeller code. But that's much, much simpler than trying to make an audio video system with the Raspberry Pi. Yeah. So then what Parker proposed, I think we both kind of came up with the same idea, that Parker's like, don't steal my idea, and I'm like, oh, we'll work on it or something, or you said that, Yeah. was to basically make a pinball controller that's just a USB peripheral, which is pretty much what B-Rock is. Yeah. So you use whatever you want, Raspberry Pi, an old Dell laptop, and then you have a peripheral that does all the low-level stuff for you. Correct. So the idea, though, behind the pin hex system was to have, like, a low-cost... Like, we, we we basically designed a board set to be used in a production or small-volume-run pinball machine. So that's going to be the idea with Pinatar going forward is, you know, take the pin hex platform, cost-reduce it even more, make it affordable... Because that's the big thing with a lot of these like pinball platforms that you can just buy online, like P Rock or Fast or, um, I think like uh, what's the other one out there? There's a couple <laughs> other ones out there. Is there like an open pinball project? Yeah, that hasn't been updated in a long, well, quite a while. Well, Jer- Jerry does P Rock as business, so he has to put his profit margins as his income into the cost. Yeah, but it's so expensive. Well, just the his main board is more expensive than the pin heck system was. The pin heck was so effing cheap. I don't yeah. think Charlie really appreciates how much that helped him with his company. Oh, in the long run? Charlie. Yeah, when he was getting started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. But yeah, so the idea is to make this even cheaper and physically smaller too, right, Parker? Yeah, so the idea is because the pin heck was like a six-layer board and it was like 14 inches by six inches. Something it was like a pretty that. beefy board. It was probably about like, yeah. It was big. Um, yeah, it was 14 inches. Um, so that, that's the that's the problem with the uh, with pinball boards, or at least just like boards in general designs, is you're kind of limited by like external world connecting to it. 
And so the reason why that board was so big was because all the connectors drove up the drove up the size. Yeah, it just goes all the way around the perimeter. And so the idea is to reduce it by reducing how many layers, because the pin heck was basically based off a lot of older style um, board sets. Like, so you had multiple like twelve volt, five volt, three point three volt rails. Didn't it? Didn't it also have a fifty volt rail on it? It had a fifty volt rail, which you do need for the solenoids, but it's. You know, it's just a fat trace. You don't really have like a plane. Yeah, the, the uh, America's Most Haunted models, they didn't even have internal. They were two-layer boards, right? Yeah, they were originally with two-layer boards. But we were running into a lot of issues with thermal management and, and stability problems. Right. The four-layer boards or six-layer later on, those are pretty solid, right? Yeah, those are pretty good. That was Rob Zombie, Jetsons, and Domino's. Yes. Actually, so... Uh, I, I remember there was the uh, the old mindset or the older pinball mindset of having to use through hole fits across the board on that. Have you guys literally across the board? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there was just there was just if you saw the pin heck boards, which I saw a ton of them back in the day. There's just rows and rows of to two twenty style fits across mm-hmm. it, and I remember Parker and I talking multiple times, like you know you could surface mount that, and it was and it's sort of the same audio general like voodoo kind of thing where it's like nope, you have to have through hole fits because reasons. So we are going with surface mount fits. Nice. So. And so what we're going to do is we're basically the problem with uh, surface mount fets is they do physically take up more board space. They're about double the size of your footprint. So we're going to put we're going to put 12 on front and 12 on the back. It's basically a bunch of 50 year old men who think surface mount soldering is magic. They think their phones are filled with magic. And I know what Parker's about to say. He's like, it's easier. It's easier. You just point hot air at it and the part falls off. Or you just use, well, I'm going to do a demo at MGC. I'm going to, you know, you can use your, you can use an iron to do it. It's not that hard. (laughs) If anything, uh, desoldering through hole components has a greater chance of damaging traces than uh, surface mount rework. Oh, for sure. I can't even count how many times I've pulled like the rings out of boards before. Right. So we're still talking like 24 solenoids. So we're still going to have like three 10 pin Molex connectors. So that can't be avoided, but we're going to have some other reductions, right? Yeah. So we're going to be going towards um, serial switches and serial lights. And so instead of having eight by eight matrix of lights and, and switches, so you'd have to have like, you'd have to have eight pins for each, you know, for the column and rows. So 16. 16 pins. And those are like the big, uh, Molex was it KK type? What's the it, pitch? Like three point six, one point five six. It's the same as the solenoid connector. Yeah. So we're gonna go to point one point five six millimeter uh, mil, inch. I should say. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna go to point one inch uh, pitch to reduce the the width and because it's serial, we can get away with four pins: power, data, clock, ground. And the switches are three wires. It's power, data ground oh it's one wire communication for those yeah i didn't tell you that oh that's right that's uart no it's not even, need- it's not even uart it's pwm zero and one communication but it's converted to rs2321152200 at the end that's just bananas yeah we can talk about that if you want yeah let's go, yeah, ahead, go into that all right so i had this i had this idea years ago and i think highway pinball tried it 
because they had a microcontroller on every inductive switch. But then someone sent me the schematics and all the microcontroller was doing was sensing an ADC, using an ADC to sense an inductive sensor to figure out if the ball was near collapsing a magnetic field. Uh, so they weren't actually using the microcontroller for anything but that. But they did have like a data in, data outline that was not connected. So it looked like they had considered serial switches. So I thought I should just kind of as a semi-retired thought experiment, could I make a serial switch, right? So what I did was I did a project last July with ATtiny 10s, which is that SOT23 microcontroller that only has six pins on it. It looks like a grain of rice. So I had a bunch of those and I was like, let's just see if I can use these because these are like 23 cents in any decent quantity. So I rigged up a high voltage programmer for it so I could use all six pins. Well, all four IO, I should say. So the reset line becomes an IO. And then I, uh, well, I won't even bother showing you guys because your viewers can't see it, but I got like a SOT23 adapter PCB and put it onto a breadboard. So I have like eight of them on the breadboard and then they go into the ninth one, which is actually the converter. And so it's uh, four IO. It's uh, switch zero, switch one. So you can actually have two bits per microcontroller. You'd also have an ADC because Parker and I are talking about load sensors as well. And then there's data in and data out, right? So the data in and data out on each one of these, which is like half the IO, right? So I was like, okay, these things need to self-enumerate so they know which one they are. So they know how many bits to expect from the previous switches. And then it'd be cool if they could convert to regular serial at the end. So I didn't want to use just regular serial for the switch to switch communication because I didn't think the timing would be accurate enough. So it uses um, pulses, kind of like a NeoPixel. So um, basically it does a low pulse that's a minimal, minimal length. So basically any falling edge is the start of a bit. And then okay. like two microseconds later, if it goes if it goes back to high in like two microseconds, it's a one. And if not, it's a zero. Right. That's pretty much it. Okay. Uh, and but still falling edge, so it works like uh, RS two three two in that in that manner. So when the switches boot, they look at their inputs and outputs, and they actually try they, they try state one, and then they put a sense on the other. Right. So each switch puts let me remember how this works. Each switch puts a zero on their input line at start, which is connected to the previous switch's output line. So when the switch boots up, if it sees a zero on its output line instead of a one, it's like, okay, I'm a normal switch. The end of the chain, you put a physical pull up on the last one. So that switch would be like, oh, I see a one there. I am the RS-232 converter switch, right? Likewise, each switch checks its, then checks its input line. The very first switch in the chain, you solder blob that to ground. So if you see a zero there after you did the first check, then you know that you are the sender switch, else you are a receiver switch. And then there's a little bit of delays so where everyone can sync up. Then the sender chip sends its enumeration as an 8-bit value, which would be zero. Then each chip waits until it gets 8 bits. And so the next chip gets the number, adds one, sends it to the next chip, and they all enumerate themselves that way. Then they wait a little bit longer. And then the sender chip sends out its switch data, so it sends out two bits. And that triggers an interrupt in all the cascading switches that 
get the bit, repeat the bit on their output, and then add the bits that they get to their own inbuilt variable. Then the last switch in the chain, and also, so if you're like, oh, I'm switch 64, that means I'm going to expect 128 bits. Once you get the total number of bits that you're expecting to get, then you either pass along your data down the chain, or in the case of the final switch, you're putting everything into a array, and then you convert all that to RS-232 using another interrupt. That's pretty much how it works. So it's all software serial. And the whole point of that is so that there's only one code base for all the switchers. Yeah, so if you, you could get them all programmed at the factory and then put them wherever and then they would figure out what they are on boot. So, yeah. And then for the uh, serial lights, we're talking about using, we found these like really cool, I guess they're not really cool. They've been around for a while. It's, it's those NeoPixels, but the ones that we found are actually lead-free compliant, supposedly. With clock data. Yeah. Because we so let me. What is that part number? You had one of those like, uh, you know, pretty bog standard RGB driver chips to drive an RGB LED before. Correct. But then we made some test PCBs for it, like to replace bulbs with. And that did work. As well. It did, but if if we could get a lead-free, appropriate clock data RGB LED instead of NeoPixel, which is which is just one line serial. That would be great yeah. because the reason that's good is because then we can easily control the spy bus at speeds higher than a NeoPixel because NeoPixels are actually kind of slow. I mean, clocking in the data is slow. Correct, yeah. Because it's all timing related, so you have to do it at 800 kilohertz. So it's, it's pretty funny, the part number for it. It's APA, which is like the company that makes a lot of these like smart LEDs. Mm -hmm. So APA 102C hyphen new hyphen 260. So it's like a Nintendo DS. Yeah, so it's <laughs> new, but the two, and the 260 means the housing can handle 260 degrees C reflow. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was a problem before, right? They would melt. Yeah, th what, what happens is the uh, lens cracks under reflow. I, if, I think there's some uh, just somehow there's a small amount of moisture trapped under there and it it potentially boils and uh cracks yeah and no amount of like baking. baking them really fixes them we did yeah we did a ton of work at at the fab back in the day to because everyone on earth wanted to use these leds uh because they're super easy to use they're cheap and mm -hmm. it's it makes life easy but man in some cases we were seeing like 30-40% failure rate on these LEDs yeah. was awful. Yeah, it's terrible. Well, that's why they have the new model. Fingers crossed. The new 260. <laughs> <laughs> now without water. So the thing Parker and I were discussing today was the best way to put connectors on these LEDs. So we would make strips. And my idea from the game I didn't get to finish was to have standard spacing between the insert lights on the pinball playfield. So you could have an LED strip of lights on a PCB and the lights would already be pre-spaced. So you could take it, the whole strip and just put it on the board of one piece or you could break it up into smaller pieces if need be. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if Steven ever saw that uh, board at the fab. I don't think so. I made a big panel of these LED strips and so you would cut how many you needed in a row. So you can cut five or you can cut three 
Wait, wait, was that the one that you made that had uh, you could program the whole panel and then you could cut the panel? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that was uh, that was kind of unique. I, I, Parker made a board that had traces that went across like a, a score area. Effectively, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't actually scored there, but it was scored on one side of the board, right? Correct. Yeah, we had it scored on one side, V scored on one side, and the traces passed on. But the you've other done side. that with other projects too, right? That's what Steven's talking about. No, he's talking about this board too. Yeah, I think that, oh, I think that okay. was the one. I, yeah, actually, I I remember you going through and uh, like that was one of those things where we sat down, and we're like, could this actually work? And it was like, well, try it, you know. Yeah, and it ended up working. Yeah, but that was, but we were using a uh, like a Cree RGB LED and then a WS twenty eight zero one. Driver chip. LED driver chip. Yeah. So if we just had two connectors, a screw hole, and the LED, it would be smaller and simpler and cheaper. Yeah. Least expensive is what we're going for with this. So that's why we were discussing what connector to use. And I think, yeah, that was a point of contention. Like you mentioned SATA connectors, which I actually, that that one I didn't mind, even though I don't know if I've had enough current carrying capacity. Yeah, that was I was started looking at um, just what kind of connectors were out there because we were originally going to use like these SMT IDC like claws is what they look like coming yeah, out. Yeah, that's of the what board. we had on the on the first prototype you guys was talking about. Yeah, and the problem with those is they don't reflow straight; they kind of just like wander on the pad, mm-hmm. and they're kind of fragile. And they're, they're uh, that's because they're square. Yeah. Right. And so we decided, hey, let's go with surface mount headers and just have like a floppy drive style ribbon cable and you have like an IDC style, you know, plug. That seems to be that that would work perfectly fine. The problem is the cost associated with those connectors and stuff. It's not they're not expensive, but they're not also inexpensive at the same time. I don't think people realize connectors are one of the most expensive things in any electronic circuit board. Yes. And the problem with that is like the cheaper SMT headers for like the 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 male side that goes on the board. Um, they get ones that are shrouded with like a locking lug or a or a, a guide um, pin. locating pin. Yeah. Those are very expensive actually compared to just like a like an unshrouded version. Mm-hmm. And so and we wanted to make sure when if someone has to take this apart later down the road, they can put it back together easily and not you know fry something. Right. Because a lot of times you're doing like maintenance on a pinball machine and it's like dark and dungy and, you know, there's cats crawling in it. Yeah. <laughs> Kids crawling in there. Yeah. So. So we went back and forth today trying to figure out what kind of connector would be better. And basically, which means cheapest. Yeah. Basically, the cheap overall. So the way you build the wires, how much time it takes, um, all that is in consideration. And SATA actually was fairly a forerunner of like how inexpensive it was because the connectors for SATA is like they're really like what are they like nine cents a piece? Yeah, that's what he said. And the problem that ended up being is the contacts are only like rated for like one point five amps, and which would be fine for the switches, but not for the lights because we need like five amps at five volts. And SATA is two twisted pairs and three grounds, which means. Even if you did try to double up the power, you couldn't because you you know you wouldn't have equal numbers of grounds and, and uh, voltages. Yeah. So then we looked at USB Type C, 
which Ben didn't like because like the cables are bulky and would be hard to bend, which is fair. Um, and, and users would try to plug their phones into it. Yeah. But it would work. And then what we settle on? RJ45? Yeah, RJ45 seems to be the the winner right now because the connectors are inexpensive. It's really easy to build the cables. You can build them in any lengths you want. And you get them in all different colors so we can color code everything. It'd probably be easier just to like buy pre-made lengths of cable. That too. Yeah. The connectors are pretty big though. But. Yeah. So that's the only downside is that the connectors are big. Well, something else to think about is, um, you know, uh, RGB LED, if it's on full white, it can actually take up to like, what, 80, 100 milliamps. And then you get enough of those put together and you're actually talking some serious current. Mm-hmm. Like 64 of them on full white would be like, what, 3.8 amps? At which time you have to start thinking about the current carrying capacity of your wiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's not infinite. <laughs> so yeah we just have to come up with a way to super chill the wires oh yeah no problem d food's probably working on that right superconducting pinball yep cryogenically Uh, aligned wires for higher current capacity exactly well i guess uh yeah rj45 like if you just have an individual light that has two rj45s going into it that might look a little jank uh, but again, any lights you have in a group, you only need one at the start and the end. So once Correct. you started doing, uh, you know, production, you would only populate the necessary jacks and then leave the contiguous PCB between the switches to like allow the you know signals to go through and only cut it where you need to. So for prototyping, you can just hit it with a bandsaw, and for production, you would just make you know groups of two, groups of five, whatever you need. And then we decided to get rid of the PIC thirty two. And we're getting rid of the prop, and we're moving to a a arm chip. Yeah, you, I still didn't order one of those yet. Should I? No, I think I want to like do the schematic and make sure we have all the peripherals we need. Okay, but we should have them all. Yeah, we were looking at the AT Sam D twenty one G eighteen A. Yeah, it's the chip that they use on the Arduino Zero and a couple other Arduino flavor boards now. I pro I programmed a handful of those at at the fab. I think the uh, Mechaduino uh, had that chip on it, which was a yep. an Arduino with a stepper motor on it, basically. That was something we were looking for. Was uh, at least what eight PWM controls for motors or steppers. Correct. And for that, we need direct I/O. We can't use shift registers like we can for the other peripherals. Yeah. So a lot of the other like the solenoid controls and GI and and Cabinet I.O. is going to be all on on expansion buses. And then we're going to be doing um, direct PDM, uh, PWM, I mean, for uh, the servos and motor controls. And then we're going to use um, we need we need spy buses. And I think uh, what, what, what does Atmel call them again? Sircoms? Sircom <laughs> is their generic name for any peripheral that can do serial. So it can become I2C, it can become, you know, UART, it can, or, or become SPY bus. So I think that chip has six circoms, so more, more than we need. I mean, we, depending, again, depending on how quickly we can clock data out to those RGB LEDs, depending on the spec, like 
The one you sent me earlier, it said that the max speed was 1.2 megahertz, which isn't actually that much faster than a NeoPixel. Something else to consider, for some reason, the clock data versions actually require four, uh, four bytes of data instead of three. So that's 32 bits times 64 lights, which is 2,048 bits, right? So then you take, say, uh, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, okay, 1.2 million divided by 2048 is 585. I don't know what that number means actually though. I can never, I have a really hard time thinking from uh, uh, like milliseconds to Hertz. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, wouldn't that be five it, in order to clock out that many cycles or that many uh, bits, it would be that many clock cycles, right? Well, at 1.2 megahertz, right? Uh, yeah, but we're talking about, we're not talking about the CPU clock cycles. No, I'm talking about at a write speed of 1.2 megahertz. I think that's... Are you trying to figure out, like, the FPS? Yes. Okay, oh, here we go, here we go. I'm using ElectroDroid app because it can think for me. Okay, so if the frequency is 1.2 megahertz for each bit of the uh, LED, that's 833 nanoseconds times 32 bits per LED, uh, 26,000, well, sorry, 26 microseconds, times 64 lights, 1.7 milliseconds, right? Yep. So that's actually a lot of time. So then you're thinking, so are, are you going to be in DMA for 1.7 milliseconds? Then how often do you update, update those per second? Maybe like 20 times a second, right? Like, let's see. So that would be... Yeah, you'd be spending 1.7 milliseconds every 50 milliseconds. Actually, that part's not too bad. We just want to make sure that that DMA process doesn't affect things like the switch input coming off of the serial switches or USB host calls. Or you press the button and the flipper flips. Exactly, yeah, because we want to... We want to <laughs> you want to actually make a game? Yeah, well, apparently P-Rock... I'm sure Jerry will go online and say this is wrong, but... You push the button, it goes up to the computer, the computer's like, oh, you want to flip the flipper, huh? And then it sends back down for the flipper to flip, and it's like, we're, we're going to do all that stuff locally. So the host computer will have to think about things like that, and it'll all be handled automatically, as well as switch devouts. Correct, yeah. So, like, if there's, like, a, if it's always going to be a switch reaction, it's kind of like, you know, your nervous system, where, like, you get hit in the knee and your knee flexes without your brain even thinking about it. Yep. Well, but but your brain knows that your knee flex, or are you also gonna send the flipper signal up in case the computer it'll needs get, to it'll know get that? the switch? Oh hit. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Like if a pop bumper gets hit, we can have it automatically react, but then it'll also say, "Hey, this pop bumper was hit." Right, in case it needs to do hit. something, which it probably does. Right, so the, you basically send data down to the microcontroller, saying, "Here are your settings," and then the microcontroller will work autonomously from that point, just like with the switches. Uh, the serial switches would be putting data in at 250 hertz, but the microcontroller would know what debunk settings are set for each switch and then only report changes instead of constantly streaming data up the chain as well. But yeah, but yeah, Parker, if we're doing a 1000 hertz main kernel on that chip, that means when we start the DMA transfer for serial lighting, it's going to take 1.7 uh, milliseconds, which means 
that transfer will go through, you know, one point five cycles of the main of the main code. So we want mm-hmm. to make sure that DMA transfer isn't affecting anything else in the system. Correct. Yeah. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. It, the whole point of DMAs are kind of like you don't affect your main code kind of thing. Right. We, well, we probably have to figure out what uh, priority level would be for it because it probably would be lower priority than something like the solenoids. However, we can look at the data sheet and see what idle time will actually cause the LEDs to latch and then make sure that if we are having things that interrupt our DMA process, that the time it takes for the other DMAs to be serviced will not exceed the reset time for the LEDs. Yeah, so you don't latch halfway through your transfer. Exactly. Yep. You want to talk about the uh, USB text adventure game now? Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about that last time I was on, right? I don't think so. No, I don't know. I, I think uh, Parker and I talked no, about that. No, I'm pretty sure I talked about we that talked with about you guys. The, we talked about it on the Ben Heck podcast a little bit. Oh, I, yeah, I wasn't a part of that one. Because you guys wanted to make like a, uh, a dongle that goes into a computer with a microcontroller on it, and it serves up a text adventure game over the serial port. That's right. Correct. Because you had a com badge a couple years ago that did that. Uh, well, and not XOR had a badge that did something yes. of that sort. And then when I, I, I got I want to say, I know we talked about this and I thought it was on this podcast. My suggestion was that you make the dongle part of the story. Like, remember, it was like an alien dongle that fell out of the sky and you're a, and you're a 10-year-old kid and you found it out in the woods. You know, like Stranger Things kind of stuff. So, yes. I was about to say Stranger Dongles, but that's just not. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, we talked about that on your podcast, Ben. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought we talked about it on here. Okay. And so I was thinking we can, like, talk about it a bit, like, you know, the scope of the project and story ideas and stuff. Yeah, sure. I thought for sure we talked about this. Okay, whatever. <laughs> okay, so we have talked about it just in a different yeah. context. Okay. Right. Yes. yes Actually, yes. I I don't think I don't think the three of us have talked. I know I Parker and I have talked quite a bit about it. Now's our chance. Yeah, this is it. Okay. So like Parker, I was actually alive when the Infocom games came out. Huh. <laughs> You're just the man to be on the project then. All right. <laughs> cool. Anyway. <laughs> All right, Steven, have, do you have any ideas for the hardware? Well, okay, so I think we mentioned this the uh, the last time we talked about it, you and I, Parker, but I would like to uh, involve aspects of the hardware itself. So I know Ben just said that, but I think having a little buzzer or having LEDs on it or something where they interact with what's actually happening on the in the game. So there might be a section where I don't know like you have to unlock something and it shows like and uh, you know there's three LEDs that end up being like an 8-bit code or something like that and you have to try different things to I don't know open a safe or whatever and you have to enter in the right LED code actually on the dongle. That could be pretty cool. Yeah, so the Infocom games in the 80s the box, you'd open up the box and there'd be all this shit in it, like trinkets, like a fake movie ticket or like a pamphlet or like a cheap earring. And it was like those items actually are part of the copy protection. So if you didn't have the real box, at some point in the game, it would reference something inside the box. And if you didn't have the item, you couldn't proceed. That sort of thing. Enter in, enter in word 
48 from page 3 of the manual? No, it was more elegant than that. It would be like, uh, what what time does the movie ticket say the showing starts? You know, or it was a lot more elegant than like dial a pirate or one of those, you know. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Metal Gear Solid for the PlayStation where in order to contact Meryl at one point in time, you had to look at the back of the case because her code was in an example picture on the back of the case. Yes, yes. Yeah. You like Castlevania, don't you? <laughs> Psychomantis. <laughs> My blood ran cold. That was like one of two two times, maybe three times, a video game just like made me like really affected. Like it was like Rescue and Fractalus, the Resident Evil Dog, and Psychomantis. The <laughs> Resident Evil Dog, that's all. Resident like, Evil Dog. <laughs> Psycho, Psychomantis would look at your memory card, memory card. Right? Yeah. and it would look at what other games you were playing. That was awesome. It's like Castlevania Symphony of the Night didn't even sell that well. So the fact that they referenced it is kind of interesting. Of course, it was a Konami game. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, then I think also, like, he would look at how much you saved. So if you didn't save very often, he would call you reckless. Yeah. No. I love how he asked you to put the uh, controller on the ground, and then he would make it vibrate. (laughs) Do you remember the part in Metal Gear Solid 3 where you fight the sorrow, and you're, like, going through the swamp, and there's all the dead ghosts coming after you? I gotta admit, uh, I never played three. Oh, really? That's one of the best ones. I, I, I that was a classic game. Well, anyway, <laughs> there's this one of the you're fighting this bad guy who is everyone in that game is like the something. There's like the sorrow, the end, the fear, right? And the sorrow basically sends all these ghosts after you. The thing is, if you actually go through the game without killing but killing anyone, there's no ghosts. Hmm. So. Yeah. Anyway, what cool. were we talk? Oh yeah, we were talking about Infocom, and yes, incorporating real life things on the dongle. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I think I think we should we should try to design it such that the dongle is the only thing that you need. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, if it could beep, could it vibrate? Would it vibrate if it was in a USB slot? We could put a vibration motor. You could put like a pager motor. I was thinking like a little tiny piezo, so we can have music and stuff play on it. So my pitch to Parker was that it's like an alien communication device that fell out of the sky. So it's like you find it, you stick it in your computer. So it's part of the story. It's not just how the story is delivered. Yeah, I, 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 I like that idea a lot. And I was thinking like it, you were able to control. This is how like aliens control like robotic agents. And so you log in as like and controlling a because Stephen had a really cool idea with um like it's a detective story kind of thing. Yep. And so you control a robotic detective basically. So right. if there was cover, if there were cover, if there was cover art for it, there'd be like a 1980s kid in the background typing on a keyboard and he'd be looking up in awe and in the foreground would be like this robotic detective man doing his every, as every bidding. And then yeah. since it's an eighties game, there'd be like a scantily clad woman and like strip clubs and it'd be considered completely appropriate for a kid's game. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, and 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 the main character has to be like full on robotic, but also wearing a trench coat, right? Wait, so yes. he's the guy from Fallout Four, right? Nick Valentine. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Nick Valentine. Yeah, there you go. Just make Nick Valentine the game, <laughs> but on another planet. Yeah, so you 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 have to you have to plug the dongle into your computer, and then you're logging into the detective. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah, maybe yeah. the lights are like his vital signs, or like maybe he's dialing a safe. And yeah. the rumble motor is you you hearing 
the clicking of the tumblers through his fingers. Like oh, something like cool. that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So we're, that we're giving away too many good secrets here. <laughs> well, wasn't that the idea? Make the dongle part of the story. Yep. And yeah, come up with some stupid thing like, oh, you know, you're a 10 year old, you find it in the woods and you plug it into your computer late at night after your parents have gone to sleep and you're transported to an alien world. So just like Stranger Things, like if you're hearkening back to 8-bit text adventure games, also hearken back to the kind of stories they told in the 80s. You know, kids, woods, robots, aliens. Maniac Mansion kind of stuff. I, that, I guess that was ni- early 90s, right? No, Maniac Mansion was like 87, I think. Was, oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, that was the first scum game. So it was the first like mainstream graphical, well, not the mainstream graphical game, but one of the you know most important ones. But wasn't that the first one that it was point and click, even though it still had the, the like, you still had to like click on like jump and, you know, Nouns push and, and verbs. Like, yeah. uh, it wasn't. No, it wasn't the first point and click graphical adventure, but it was like the it was like the most important first one. It was also the first Lucas Lucasfilm games because Lucasfilm games at that time. It was the first game that used the Scum engine, which is the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. That's what Scum stands for. Right. And then they use that in like twelve more games after that, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, pretty much up and actually they used it until Grim Fandango in '97. It actually was used on that. I didn't know. That. No, it was used up until Grim Fandango. Oh my! Grim God. Fandango is 3D and had a different engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I uh, probably Full Throttle was the last thing it was used in. Full Throttle was awesome. I still play that about once a year. Ooh. So yeah, I think it sounds like a cool project. Yeah. Well, if you guys want any writing help, let me know. I'll help you. We will totally need your help. Well, and and you have some ideas. I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the spot if you don't, but <laughs> you have some ideas on how the engine might actually work behind it, right? Uh, sort of like a giant state machine in a way, right? I guess it depends on how in-depth it is. The Infocom games were actually pretty in-depth, much like a uh, the Pringles can in your living room that spies on you that I'm not going to name because then it'll try to do something. <laughs> Alexa. It- <laughs> Order eight pizzas right now. Accept. Yeah. Send to Mac Rev Engineering Podcast. <laughs> that thing that thing can hear me while I'm in the bathroom with the fan on and the door closed. Anyway, uh like the reason I bring it up is Infogam games remember like what the uh the, the subject of a sentence was. So if you're like pick up hat, okay, throw it. Okay, it would, it would know that you're talking about the hat because that's the last thing you talked about. Correct, yeah. I mean, most of the older, simpler ones had noun, verb, two words, like take lamp. And all they would do is they'd create an index of items and verbs. And they'd only look at the first three letters, so it would just ignore the rest. So it would look for three letters, ignore until space, three letters, look for carriage return, interpret. And there would also be single letter commands like I for inventory, northwest, southeast, L for look, stuff like that. I think we should we should go that route. I don't think we have to get too fancy with this, right? Yeah, I agree. Also, I, I, I was thinking about Mark Parker like sent me a, a, an article. Gosh, Zork was few, pretty verbose, actually. Yeah. It, it was, but okay. So Zork was also really douchey. Uh, I was I was reading an article not that long ago where apparently. 
they put a random number generator for your weight or the weight of items that you were carrying. So if, let's say, you came up and there was a sword on the ground and you say, take sword, it would actually do a random number generator and it could deny you picking up that sword for no reason other than you just failing the check. That's terrible. It's awful. Yeah, and they wouldn't tell you. It would just say, you can't pick this up. Uh, it would say you can't pick this up because... No, it would say your inventory is full. But well, if you okay, tried it again, it you could... Yeah. Yeah, even though it wasn't. Because you can't check what you, your weight is for your inventory. Did, and so you had, just have to try it again. They had inventory weight back then? That's... I don't remember that. Yeah, no, uh, there. I can't... We'll have to search for that article again. But yeah, no, it was this whole okay. thing where someone searched through the old Fortran code and found the random number generator that was for picking up items. They actually had... Yeah, they would write everything in one script and then they would compile it for all the different computers. That was one thing they did at Infocom, which... You know, okay, so so what I would say with this game that I think is really important is we should try, when we're making the story and when we're making the puzzles and all the things you do, one of the things that is really important is we should try to think about how the player is playing it and always try to make them not feel against a brick wall. Like, what do I do? Where do I go? Like, I don't want to hold their hand, but I don't want it to be like Zork where it's like, I go north and I'm in a place and then I go south and then I go north again, and I'm in a different place. Well, like, they expect you to draw a map. Yeah, but Parker and I actually tried drawing a map for Zork a, a little while ago. You go to random places, even if you go forwards and backwards. Like, it's mm -hmm. awful. Like, I don't like that. I'd, I'd rather, like, the game be repeatable. Let's put it that way. It's more, it needs to be more, the, the problem with that is, like, you'll, in Zork, there's, like, sometimes there's, like, two norths. Or something like that. That's what happens in that game. Oh, so, yeah. I would say, yeah, make it more grid-like. So if you go north, south, and then back, it's always repeatable. Well, if you're a detective in a city, there would be grids. There would be blocks, city blocks. Because I assume aliens would have the same sort of city layout as us, right? No, they're hexagons. Yeah, you know. We, we, we could explain that since you're a robot, you can only understand cardinal directions and only go in cardinal directions. Yeah, and only use two words. Right? Yeah, there we go. Talk, awesome. woman. <laughs> Get lamp. I like that. Smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And yeah, he has to be able to smoke. You should put in like some Infocom humor, like, you know, you're on an alien planet and you go north and you're like, what an amazing coincidence to use the same cardinal directions we do. You know, make some <laughs> observations like that. What kind of, uh, speaking of that, what kind of chip are you going to use? Because you could run out of space really quickly. Yeah, so that's the thing is we don't need a lot of peripheral uh, on this microcontroller. We just need a lot of space. And we haven't really come up with that yet. What if you had uh, like a little I2CE problem on it that you could stream data off of? That's what we were thinking is basically put everything on the EEPROM. Yeah, have have all of everything on the EEPROM and then the micro just acts as the bridge between the computer and, you know, the buzzer and things like that. So the reason I bring that up is because in the in the 80s, you'd be playing an Infocom game and it would come on like, oh, I don't know, two discs, two or three discs and they'd be double sided as well. And as you move from area to area, you have to swap discs. And on top of that, Every command you type in would like access the disk for some reason. Like, I don't know if there was a database on there or what it was doing. And people used to think it was part of the, 
the drama, like, okay, it worked, you know? <laughs> Point being, uh, those computers typically had 32 to 64K of RAM, and that clearly wasn't enough to store one of those adventures. So if you're talking about, like, uh, what's that, the RG Boy micro? Not RG Boy. The thir- 18 mega third to U4. Right. Like, that might be a really good choice, aside from the fact that you don't have a whole lot of program space. But if you had, yeah, internal, uh, external I2C. Could... Well, I think they, they make a smaller version of that that has built-in USB, which we would need. And we can just tack on a, you know, ginormous e- EEPROM on it. You mean like a, a 16.8 version? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You probably have to come up with some sort of file system so you knew where things were on the serial EEPROM. And then would you have like a Huffman text decoder for compression? Would you do anything like that? I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, do you we, know how we, that part, do you, do you know how that works? I know, I don't know how Huffman encoding works. I know how Runline. Right. Okay. So it doesn't, RLE doesn't work with text because it's, it doesn't. Yeah, correct. So what they do, like, like really simply, imagine the alphabet split in half, right? The first 13 letters and the second 13 letters. So you'd have one bit and that bit's a zero or one. And that's like, okay, the letter is in the first or the second half. The next bit, it's in this half or this half. Next bit, it's here. So for very commonly used letters like E and M, it They're would- f- faster it, in the tree. Yes, fewer bits. Basically like, oh, I got the last choice. That's the letter. So basically, they, they use the bits to b- store binary choices to narrow down where the letters are, where something like X or Q would, would take longer to get to. Yeah, I, I, I pull up the Wikipedia article for that, and I'm like, oh, yes, I remember this from one of my classes yeah. 10 years ago now. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You might not need that much encoding. Like, If you get like a one meg EEPROM, that would probably hold everything you need and some. Yeah. Oh, probably, for sure. We want to put some music in there for the, the buzzer. I was using RLE on my on my RG Boy game though, so for the maps, that's that's appropriate. It's it seems like it's pretty good. It's about eight to one. So, so do we want to go on to the Epic Game Store discussion? Yeah, let's go ahead. And yeah, go. do we want to go on to the Epic Game Store? Yeah, because now the MacFab Engineering Podcast is a Epic Game Store exclusive now. Oh, oh really? <laughs> so for those that don't. No, I bet you a lot of our listeners don't know because Steven didn't even know what this is. I did not. Is the Epic Game Store is like Steam. Um, it's a it's a marketplace to buy video games at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what Epic Epic is a dist- uh, publisher for video games. They also make video games, I guess. Um, they make like the most popular video game in the world right now. Which one is that? Is it, is it still number one? Is that Fortnite? Yes. I, I don't know. Do they make that? I, I yeah, it's, I, yeah they, they make it. Epic Games, not Epic Healthcare Software. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what they basically have done is now that they have like 80 million 10-year-olds with their launcher, they're leveraging that user base to create a Steam competitor. Yeah. And so they, I, the, what Epic is doing is they're paying... Uh, publisher, other game publishers and developers money to basically be exclusive no, 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 on the platform? They're, well, they're not necessarily paying them money. They're so not they taking are in some cases. Much. Oh, so they are giving people cash money? Yeah. Okay. In some cases, they are giving them just straight up money to be exclusive. 
Interesting. Well, but okay, on top of that, Steam takes 30%. Well, all the app stores take 30%. Uh, yeah. Epic Store only takes 12 I think. And then if your game uses Unreal Engine, which they obviously make, they waive the 5% license fee for that. So you go from like 30% to Steam, 5% to Epic, down to 12%. And Correct, yeah. And since probably so, like, what, half the games made use Unreal, that's a lot of games. Yep. Yeah, I was, I, okay. So a I lot of people don't that, like and, and I'm confused, like, all, what's the problem here or what's the issue? I guess people don't want to have another launcher. I kind of find it annoying. I've already got like three on my computer. And it's like, oh God, okay, if I want to play PUBG, what launcher is that on? And oh, who's on my friends list? But you do have multiple friends lists though. You have Facebook, Twitter, Google chat, your phone messages. You have, you know, I have Discord, Slack. True, yeah. Yeah, but 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 all of those are kind of compartmentalized and they have their own function. They're not all used to just play games on. But they're all used to just text messages to people. Though. True. Yeah, that that's true. And there are some people that I can think of where if you want to contact them, there's some people where Facebook is the best way. Some people where text message. Like I could text Jones right now and he wouldn't respond, but if I texted him on Steam, he would respond. It just, it just varies by person. <laughs> Which I guess, you know, does go to what Parker is saying, where there's multiple ways to communicate with people and there's, people have their preferences. Correct, yeah. Like, I hate when people call me on the phone. It's like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> Podcasts are the best way to talk to Ben. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know Discord is really... Uh, there's a lot of fanboys for Discord, and it's great. I've used it before, but it's also Discord seems like one of those ones where it's just if you don't use it often, then every time I launch it, I'm like, ah, oh, it's confusing. Like, where do I go to even just like start talking to someone? And I feel <laughs> like I feel like they're like having all of these different platforms that you have to go to. It's like this one is for playing a game. This one's for talking to people. This one's for inviting people or whatever. I don't know. Like you just have to keep so much in your memory. I don't know. Maybe I'm so just So we need a launcher for then. launchers. <laughs> yeah. We need to consolidate all of this. I think that's called Windows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the uh it's Cortana, right? Well, so now the joke is like pretty much every game that gets announced ends up as an Epic Store exclusive and the re most recent one even though no one was surprised by it, it was Borderlands uh, 3. When's that supposed to come out? September, I think. Ooh, I think okay. that's when it was announced the, to be released. Yeah, but Steam Steam currently has, what, like 90% of the market in terms of all uh, games? Epic Store, thanks to all the 10-year-olds, actually has more active users than Steam. Really? But yep. for, <laughs> probably just because of Fortnite. Yes, Definitely, just because of Fortnite. Yes. If you have Fortnite and Minecraft, you you win the internet. Oh, Minecraft is so done. <laughs> kids, all kids care about now is Fortnite. It's unbelievable. Is it? Is it Fortnite? Maybe I'm wrong, but is it Fortnite on its way out? Oh no, I don't think so. Oh really? People are saying that, but it's I I'm still seeing it. It still tops like the Twitch stream charts and when, stuff. When I when I went to the manufacturers convention in September. Uh, in Chicago, and they had students coming through. 
whenever they saw video game stuff, because I had 3D printer examples, all they they were like, oh, it's like Fortnite. They just wouldn't shut up about Fortnite, right? Then the uh, Murph convention, Parker, that you didn't go to, mm-hmm. every kid that was there with their parents, they weren't even looking at the printers anymore. They were all on their phones playing Fortnite, wearing Fortnite t-shirts. It's ridiculous. It's kind of funny. We had this game that all these 10-year-olds are playing regarding shooting people. <laughs> it's like, what would the gun control people think of that? Or what do they think of that? It's kind of funny. Oh, God. They love it, though. Have you played Fortnite, Ben? No. I I, I don't like third-person perspective, as Parker could tell you. I I, <laughs> I played yeah, PUBG right. with you a couple of times. I remember. So are, are all these 10-year-olds going to be like super gun nuts in 15 years? Oh, you got to wonder. Only if they're like cartoony neon guns, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone dresses like a furry and they dance more than they shoot. <laughs> the Whatever. shooting range is going to be really weird in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> you thought DeviantArt was bad now. <laughs> Uh yeah. So, I yeah, that's my big thing, Parker. A couple weeks ago, for some reason, Mike and I tried. We did a battle royale, battle royale, where we played through them all in sequence that were installed on our computers. And oh, yeah. yeah, we had to use three different launchers because it was like Steam. It was PUBG on Steam, then Blackout, Call of Duty, which was on uh, Blizzard.net, right? And then what was then? Then of course, uh, Battlefield Five Firestorms on Origin. Ben, do you want to wrap up this podcast? Yeah, sure. It was a lot of fun talking about new pinball board designs. Something we've done in the past. I think we should try to make it as cheap as possible. That should be the number one goal above everything else. So barely functional, as cheap as possible. <laughs> Just adequate enough. It would, again, just like the ZX Spectrum, the world's most amazing piece of shit computer that conquered a country <laughs> until Fortnite came out. <laughs> uh, would you like to sign us out, Ben? Yeah, sure. Uh, let's see, do I have text I have to say? Okay, yes. Well, that was a Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Benjamin Heckendorn, but now I'm not anymore. Well, that's why you was. Or were. Well, we was your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG. Or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. And if you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.